Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of PQA Panel Talks. As always, I'm your host, Mike Kerchuk. For this episode, we thought we'd bring you something a little different. We're going to bring you a summer edition of our podcast. Normally, we try to bring you interesting content that you can directly apply to your day-to-day, knowledge-filled discussions that directly relate. But being a good tester is more than that. Experience builds the capability to recognize bugs just as much as learning about tools and processes do. For the summer edition, we thought going a bit lighter would be a good idea, so you could listen to our podcast or on the pool or whatever you're doing. But we still wanted to provide some testing values. So what we're going to do is to add our experiences to your own, and then that helps you react even better to the next thing. So PQA Panel Talks is friends with a lot of testers with lots of stories about being out there in the field of software testing but they don't always get to share. So for this episode, I'm gonna be calling in with some of our friends, some familiar voices you've heard before, and some new to hear some testing stories that challenge them or changed how they think about testing. I might even share a story of my own. So for our first guest, we're heading over to New Brunswick to speak with an old friend of the podcast and a veteran of automation at PQA, John McLaughlin. Hi, John. What testing story did you have to share with us? Hi. So the story I have is one that I I think about regularly uh, when similar scenarios come up. It was a number of years ago now, maybe in the range of 10 years ago, testing an application. We were using QuickTest, or it was at the time, it was, I think HP had bought it by that time, so it would have been rebranded to UFT. And the, the application we were testing did a lot of things, but one of the core capabilities that it had to do was register a client and a client in this context is basically a customer that would come in and do a service or make a change to their profile just so i i had been asked to run a script to help with uh, other forms of testing which required the creation of a large volume of clients or customers so my test would basically just open the application, go to the registration form, create a client, and then finalize the registration process and then repeat, 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 repeat again to, to register. The goal was a couple hundred clients to get into the system. I found that after about 50 or so clients were entered, one, my system would slow down really noticeably and the the browser would eventually just crash and die. So after some troubleshooting and kicking that around for a while, I, I watched it and observed with Process Explorer and noticed that each with each iteration that it was creating a client, the memory that my browser was consuming was going up and up and up and up. And then some extra digging in beyond that point, I found that each time a client was created, there was, it's basically like a session was added to the cookies for that specific client that was being created but every time the form was saved and then closed and then reopened that cookie wasn't cleared or the cache wasn't cleared so my browser cache was getting filled up really quickly with all of the clients i was creating and then it would just overload the browser uh and and kill the test basically so that defect kind of stood out to me ever since it happened because it's not something that we would have ran into in the normal day-to-day testing that we were doing which normally we would have just been creating one client or customer at a time and and stepping through a workflow where this one was repeating a process of continual client registrations which after investigating this and finding out the issue that was a real world kind of 
use for this application. This was something that really would have uh, occurred. I don't think we would have found it testing it manually just because of the pure volume of clients and, and actions that it had to take on the form. That's probably one of the defects that I always remember as, as an interesting one that was found in general found by us and then found with using an automation tool to help me get there. So uh, would have this been maybe your first foray into starting performance testing, John? That, that's an interesting way to think about it. it. It wasn't the traditional form of performance testing where we weren't, I wasn't testing like a, or it wasn't triggering a volume kind of breakage where it was, you know, if I had 50 or, or 100 people entering a client at the same time, it wasn't that type of issue, which probably relates to traditional performance testing right now. This was more of like a session, I would almost say like a, an endurance style of test where it's only one user that's acting, but they're doing the same process over and over and over again. Because of a flaw with how cache was cleared each time that particular form was closed, it, it loaded up the system. And it wasn't even necessarily loading up the system, it was loading up the browser because the browser... This was at the time too, I didn't mention this, but this was at a time when the standard that we had to use was Internet Explorer 8, which is not the the most fancy thing in the world, but cache got loaded up in the browser and then killed the browser. So while, while it kind of had an illusion of a performance effect, I don't think I would put it in the category of, say, traditional performance. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, because you don't normally performance the single browser. I mean, it was definitely what I would qualify as a memory leak, I think. But, uh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, and I guess you said that this is definitely something that would happen in the real world. I guess it, in the real world, it would take a lot longer, though, because you're not going to register a whole bunch of times on your own PC. But I think that the more you did with in session, right? So if you kept a session and did stuff today and tomorrow then it, it would build up, right? That's right. It, it would take a, a very specific type of day for them to have encountered this. So the reason that I thought that it could be applied to the real world is from what I understood when this application went live, there was supposed to be one individual whose task it was to register clients. If it happened to fall on a day that ha they had a really busy morning and they were just registering client after client after client, that would have occurred. But in most days, there's like in a real world kind of queued type of environment, one user comes up and registers and then you move on down the line and there's a bit of a lull or a break in between the registrations you have to do. It wouldn't have been caught as easily at that point because the, the cache would have had much longer time to load up and then eventually die. But if it was one person's task on a really busy day to register clients, it could have, it could have presented itself at that point. And nobody likes their browser just blowing up, especially when you can't really attribute it to anything. And most especially in these days with multiple tabs open, it's hard to say, yes, it was tab X that did it. So I think that was a really good find. Yeah, it was one. I was pretty excited about it at the time. Uh, it was the first time I'd found anything like that, like a memory leak or anything to do with memory usage. It was exciting at the time, and it was something I've remembered ever since then. I've told that story a number of times to the various clients that I go to ever since it happened, basically, over the years of, of being here and doing this. I've kept that story in mind when considering the consequences of how and when and why we test certain things. Awesome. Thanks, John. That was a great story. Our next guest with a testing story is Christine Wiedemann. Now, you've all probably uh, listened to Christine in prior podcasts. 
but this is this is her chance to give us a little vignette into her history and testing. So welcome, Christine, and, and thank you. Thanks, Mike, and thanks for inviting me again. I appreciate it. I was thinking about this topic and sort of interesting bugs I found or interesting test situations, and it really brought me back to um, the early stages of my career. So this would be over 10 years ago when I was testing retail software. And it was very interesting, but it's also challenging work because you're working with peripherals, a lot of different hardwares, and anyone that tested hardware systems with hardware know that there are additional challenges. But you're sitting there in your lab, you have everything set up, you get pretty confident, you learn how the things work, and you get a little bit overconfident thinking that you actually also know how the users are going to use the things you're building. But when you're standing in a warehouse at five in the morning, just before the store opens, it is quite different. So I was part of a lot of store rollouts when new stores opened or when stores switched over to this hardware. And being there, working together with the staff, that was quite an experience that really opened my eyes up for what the users are like and what it's like for them to be exposed to a new system, to watch them use their the previous system, which we might have thought was too simplistic, it was old fashioned, it was inefficient, but they were really good at using it. And we gave them this brand new amazing system that was really hard for them to use. And the peripherals didn't fit into the small cash register spaces and things like that. And also appreciate their working conditions, how hard it is to stand on that concrete floor for eight hours a day and serve customers while trying to use all these new tools that we're giving them. So I was very humbled by that experience, and it definitely changed how I view end users and end user advocacy. So I would say those early days testing out in the field like that with the end users really changed my outlook on testing. Well, excellent. Reminds me of my days back with our legacy green screen applications. And we used to have people who you'd watch them come into a screen and they would press tab, enter tab, space, space, tab, enter space, put in an X. And then do that again, right? And they would go through the screen and you'd be like, I, they just have these memorized patterns. And testers today have no ability to put themselves into that type of brain set when they're testing, right? They just, they just can't relate. I mean, I guess we don't do that as much. But even in all applications now, people build these habits and these patterns. And, and it's really hard for our, our logical brains to put ourselves into a brain set where that becomes normal because we don't have months and months of practice. So... Yeah, I mean, it's it's really a, a good thing for people to think about. Well, and it definitely made me realize there's a difference between what we think is the best solution for people, the solution people want, and the solution people can actually take advantage of. Yeah. Because you're absolutely right. There's a lot of sometimes just muscle memory, how to use these old-fashioned systems or keyboard base. And back then, 10 years ago, when they got touch screens, that was still a fairly new thing. People didn't quite know how to use them. They weren't always super accurate. And it's not for us to tell tell people what's going to make their lives easier. Yeah, it reminds me of, of back when Windows first came in at the railway where I was working. They had this fight that went all the way up to VP level about leaving FreeCell and, and Solitaire on the machine. And the argument was, it will help people understand how to use a mouse. And it was true. It, it was just having a game, gamifying it was the only thing that helped people understand and relate to the new system. And then that's where you start building your patterns. I think that's super clever. That makes a lot of sense. Well, that's great. Thank you so much, Christine. Uh, we'll let you get back to your day, but uh, that was a great story. Thanks. Thanks, Mike.
For this next story, we're welcoming a first-time guest uh, to PQA Panel Talks. It's Afshin Shahabi. He's worked with PQA for seven or eight years. He's first or second employee in our Vancouver office, and, and he's a great tester with a whole bunch of experience in banking and a number of other places. And uh, I'm excited to hear the story that he's brought for us today. So with that, over to you, Afshin. Hello, everyone. I found a defect in iPhone map direction. That client was not able to fix it, and it went up to the Apple and found out that the logic that they were using to find the correct direction compared to Google Map was incorrect. This issue plus other issue caused Apple to change the dev lead for the Apple Map, and then they rewritten the whole Apple Map. And that was the case that I reported in one of the clients as I was testing the map for them. Wow, that's that's a pretty big impact for, for someone to get reassigned and then to change the entire thing all the way back up to Apple. It almost makes you famous, only you're probably anonymous. But what's not clear to me, Afshin, is, is what did the bug look like? If I was a user, what would I have seen? On the iPhone, when you actually run the client's app, the client app was a um, bank so that you, on the bank, you, you are actually searching for the nearest either ATM machine or the bank branch. So the map was supposed to show you which direction is actually closest possible way to get that to ATM from your location to the ATM or branch. And when I saw that and compare the, you know that when it actually draws the direction, it actually has a dot lines. And by looking at it, and then I run the same thing on Google on my non-iPhone device, which was like a PC, I found out that the Google actually is closer. And it was closer than like maybe 50 meters or so, but it was closer. So compare that when you're actually doing something like 100 kilometers or 30 kilometers, then that 300 meters plus 50 meters that it was longer, it creates some issues. So for me, initially it was okay. And then I realized that let's just compare that with Google. And, and this, this is how I found that this is corrupted. This is defect. Did, did you put in your write-up, Google does it better? Because I think that would be a really fast way for someone to lose their lead uh, leadiness at Apple. I did took a picture from the Google map. I did take a picture of the iPhone with the direction that was app using that. And I, I just let people to compare. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think that's the number one fastest way to get any sort of, to get an action item out of Apple. So that's cool. That's a really interesting bug that uh, I don't know if it would have saved a life in, in, a, in a banking app because it's not uh, that urgent where you end up. But if it was a problem all the way back to Apple, that could have ended up with people ending up in weird places or in the woods or in dangerous areas. So that's that's really cool. Good job, uh, Afshin. Yeah, just one thing to add. The app that they were running, it was number one in North America in banking app. And it was number two or three in the whole world. So the app that they are running is actually, they are very peculiar and then very... Uh, very much like detect everything that they can so that they can be number one in North America still. So even even such minor thing was very, very much like in the attention of the PM and everybody's stakeholders. So 
that was the reason they they took it like seriously. Well, that's awesome. Well, I like if any bug gets taken seriously, but you know, the customer is king. So uh, if the customer is going to be unhappy, I like that people react. So that's awesome. That's a great story. Thank you so much, Afshin. Thank you very much for uh, listening to it. Thanks again, Afshin. We're going to let you head off to enjoy your day. And next, we're going to give our friend Shawnee Pulchis a call. Shawnee's a tester with our Play Doh theme, and you may have heard her when she did our Women in Testing episode last year with Christine Wiedemann. She's got a great bug story from her early days in testing, which is getting longer ago now. You're, you're no longer a spring chicken in the testing world, so that's pretty awesome. So uh, welcome, Shawnee, and tell us your story. Thank you. A few years ago, I worked for a company that compiled data from a bunch of search engines, and then they would resell that information to their clients. And so I created a user with my name on it so I could go ahead and uh, use that for testing. And someone else was using it and ended up putting information in it that created this huge defect. The reason why it became such a huge thing is because it actually took quite a few months to fix, as well as a couple different teams to dig into it quite a bit. But the fact that my name was used on it, they dubbed it the Shawnee defect. So in the meetings, they would always used to call it the Shawnee defect. Um, And my team lead printed it out and posted it on the wall because he said that he had never heard of someone having a bug named after them before. And, and he just thought it was funny and wanted me to be reminded of it every day. So he printed it out for me. Oh, well, now, now I'm curious. Are you still connected to anyone? You should ask if they still talk about the Shawnee defect. <laughs> I don't know if they have it within their company anymore. Um, unfortunately, I'm not as connected with them anymore. But I do see them, a few people from our team around the office that worked on it. And sometimes it comes up. <laughs> you know, I, in my 20 plus years of testing, I don't think I've ever had a bug named after me. That's what he so said as well. <laughs> <laughs> so so you're pretty famous well done Sean. thank you all right well thanks that was cool thanks for your story and um that's it sure have a great afternoon you too well folks it's not every day that you get a bug named after you i don't think i've ever had one named after me i'm really curious have you ever had a bug named after you if you have let us know i wonder if our next guest an old friend to our podcast has ever had a bug named after him welcome back nat why don't you tell us what your favorite bug is? Absolutely. Yeah. So as uh, as you sent me the request, I started going back through some of the bugs that, that have come to mind throughout my career. And one in particular stood out. And it was while I was working on a product that did um, uh, analysis on diagnostic images. And so as you can imagine, your expectation as a user of such a system is that, you know, when you're looking at a diagnostic image, again, this was industrial imaging, not not medical, but, you know, the things that you do with that image are quite important from an engineering perspective. And so one of the tasks that this software performed was our hardware would capture the image itself or the data behind it. And then our software would produce the image. And then you could, as a user, use the the software that we were providing with it to perform some calculations. And so one of those things was we could image a tank or a pipe. And within the image of that pipe, you could measure the wall thickness. And so what we what we ended up finding was that uh, through the use of the, the platform, you could manipulate the images, but your applied function after. So we had this little drag tool that the user could draw a line across the 
the, the wall that was in the image, and it would provide kind of an estimate of the thickness of remaining walls. So that's important from an engineering perspective because these pipes or tank walls will kind of corrode over time and thin. And when they reach kind of half their original thickness, it's time to replace or repair the, the asset. And so what was what was neat or what was uh, unique here is that as testers, we were kind of playing around with it and the value would change depending on how we, you know, what filter you applied to the image. Sometimes the various filters made the flaws in the pipes kind of more apparent than others. But what we also found is that thickness changed depending on what filter you had or what zoom levels you had. And so it, we the, the running joke was how thick do you want it to be? And so, you know, we, we could take these images of pipes and you could manipulate the thickness to pretty much anything you wanted with this software tool. So it was definitely one of those interesting bugs that, it, you know, if left out in the out in the field uncorrected, an engineer might make some pretty serious mistakes just based on how they might use the, the software. So that's my bug contribution to, to the podcast. So did you find by accident or had you written a test case that that made it obvious. It, it was more experimental. I mean, we had test case to make sure that the function more or less would do what it said. Again, like as we're going through each, because there was a variety of, of tools that were were there for the users. But yeah, it wasn't a specific test that that found this. Like it, it was more through exploration and and use of the tool. And it was actually a bit coincidental that or accidental that we found it because you had to apply a particular filter or pre-apply some functions to the image for this to, to happen. And so it was a bit accidental that we found it. Yeah, I mean, as I was listening, I was like, that wouldn't be easy because you're probably going to write a test case for this filter and then you're going to write a test case for this filter and then you're going to write a test case for this filter. But it's not absolutely obvious. They're just like, well, okay, I should write a test case where I apply this filter and then this filter and then this filter and then this filter and compare the results. So you have to be clever and and awake, right? So that's one of the things about being a tester is be awake and, and notice things. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it was, um, I forget how, it, um, I mean, obviously, as we were releasing the software, we were engaging with potential customers and, and they were playing around with it. And there were some other flaws in the design of, of such a tool. We were kind of mimicking uh, some of the, the the tools available in other like medical platforms, stuff like that. And we knew that there were some weaknesses. It was hard to draw the line straight across the, the features. And so there was some error just by the the way that the tool was built into the, the software as well. But again, this was a specific bug that was written into the, the software that basically guaranteed that your values were going to be wrong. But yeah, there were some inherent design limitations to, to the way these tools could work. Yeah, that's kind of neat. Yeah, it's totally awesome, Bug. Thanks. And and there's a lesson in there somewhere. I'll let our listeners figure out what it is. But uh, that's awesome. Thanks, Nat. No problem. Glad to contribute. All right. So we've brought in some great friends of the podcast so far. But for the summer edition, we wanted to bring in someone extra special. We have the founder of PQA and Plato, Keith McIntosh. He is also a tester. He started a testing company and he's been testing most of his life. So he's got tons of stories and he's he's come here to tell us one today. So uh, over to you, Keith. What's your story? Well, I've, I've, uh, I was trying to think of a good story to tell about your testing ability, Mike, but some things are better left unsaid. So I was thinking about some stuff we used to do. When I, when I first started the company, I, I told a told a guy I admired what I was going to do. He said, well, testing is great, but you could really create a great company if, if you'd find a way to make requirements better. You know, the, most, of, most of the problems and bugs aren't actually bugs in code. They're bugs in missing requirements or misunderstood requirements or misapplied requirements. That, so I, my story, I guess, is around that. One of the 
projects we did with another gentleman that works with us now who will remain nameless to protect the sort of innocent. He was working for a big airline and, uh, and we wrote a lot of tests for them in, in, in Windrunner and Test Director at the time. You'd run the test on Windrunner and you'd they'd put reports into Test Director and, um, you come in the morning and look at the results and it worked pretty well. I mean, you, you, we wrote about a thousand, maybe two thousand test cases for them over the, for that project over the course of a few months and random. But the, the unfortunate part about that was that their goal, the development team's goal that our, our folks who are now work for us were doing at the time was to, to get all the test cases to pass. So we had about two thousand test cases and you'd run them at night and you'd come in the morning and look at them and anything that had a green check mark saying it passed, they just never ran again. The whole goal was to get a thousand uh, check marks. I, I don't think that was that goal was maybe applied in a proper way. The, the whole idea of Windrunner being able to tell it, set a status of pass or fail was really important for automation at, at back then at the time. And there's a whole lot of different things happen now, but then it was really simple. There was a global variable that we, the test would trigger. You could say it was pass or fail and, and it would report into test directory. And you just look at thousand results in the morning and, and you'd go back and look at the ones that were wrong. So we had a project we were working on. I hired a, a new person, new to testing, the coder. And I told him, you know, we're going to write these test cases and, and, and make sure you, that when you start a test case, the global variable is set is blank, set null or whatever. And at, when you run the test case and then you set the test case to pass or fail, you set the status variable to pass or fail. So we did that and they wrote surrounded tests and they ran and it was a pretty good piece of software. So they all passed. And back in those days, like I said, most of the bugs were found in actually writing the tests. The tests typically didn't find many because you were working on all of it as you're building them because you had to go through the interface mostly. Anyway, so tests were all passing. That was all good. And we ran them again and all passed. And one day we ran a, a new build and I knew that things were going to fail and I came in and they all passed. So I went back and I looked at a couple of test cases and the guy had had uh, taken all the test cases, written them all out nice, made sure he set the global variable off at the start of the test and runs it. And at the end of the test case, he set that global variable to pass. So clearly, I didn't specify any requirements for him writing the test cases exactly what I wanted him to have happen. And he should have done a better job of you know, being clear on requirements and being clear on expectations. But it's also a sign you, know, you can't just take the status or the automated test for gospel. You need to go back and debug it because... Just as programmers make mistakes in code, testers can make mistakes in their test cases and codes too that you need to go back and check. So, so that's kind of brilliant. I think what you're saying there is that you hadn't indicated that you have to update the global variable based on the results, and he was just updating it to pass no matter what, right? Well, I told him to set the global variable to, at the end of each test to set it to pass or fail, and I didn't, I guess, specify what the criteria should be. <laughs> So that makes it sound like that you're about 10 years ahead of the uh, shift left movement there, Keith. If you were just louder, we could have been way ahead of <laughs> yeah, testing. Yeah, that would have been. Maybe so. Maybe so. Anyway, that's my story. Awesome. Well, thanks for the story, Keith. That was great. Thanks, Mike. Hey, folks. So the next story we've got is coming from the friend of the podcast and prior panel guest, Shaheim. As you may already know, Shaheim is an experienced teller of stories of, and uh, of interesting bugs over on his own podcast called That's a Bug, which uh, I got to guest on uh, last month. If you like this podcast, I definitely recommend you go out and check his. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to you, Shaheim, so you can tell us your interesting story. Sure. I'll talk about something that happened quite a long time ago, actually. So I used to work for a company where we used to build software for Blackberries. The company doesn't exist anymore. Anyway, that, they got acquired by Blackberry uh, years ago. So this is one of my earlier testing jobs. And one of the things that came up was to be able to test the software we were building at that company in like low 
coverage areas or low network areas or no coverage at all, like no data and things like that. And I couldn't figure out how to do that. And I would be trying to move it around to different places in our office, at my house. And I couldn't figure that out. And I was talking to somebody at work who mentioned the Faraday cage. I, I didn't actually know what a Faraday cage was back then. And uh, then I started Googling. Someone said that online said, like, suggested putting it inside a fridge or a freezer. And I tried doing all those things and I would put them in there and I would call the phone and it would always ring. I spent probably a whole weekend trying to find different places to put it in to see what would happen. Then a bit later, I, I found this place I was staying at. My landlady had like, I think I'd left like a tin can, like a cookie can kind of thing. And for some reason, I put it in there. The the cover, like it almost went dead. That was the one thing that worked. So the, the, the following Monday, I took this can to work and I said, like, I found the solution. Here, put this in there. And, and so that, that's what I did. And in the end, what happened was that actually that worked. And as part of our test cases, we like put it in the out of coverage can for testing low coverage situations. I, I was quite proud of this, but it was a complete coincidence that I found a solution for that. And it's something I quite enjoyed. You missed the chance to call it the Faraday can. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely did. <laughs> it's a, for somebody else named it, not, not me. I, I don't remember who though, but somebody else named it out of coverage can. <laughs> it's, it's way too late to help you. But I was, uh, I was trying to get hold of one of my employees one day and he couldn't get him, couldn't get him, couldn't get him. I called his lead and I said, Hey, why can't I get a hold of blah, blah? And he said, Oh, I think he's testing coverage. And I said, oh, so how's he doing that? I said, I haven't the faintest idea. So eventually he called me back and it turned out that they found a super simple solution, which is just going to the bottom of a parking lot. <laughs> yeah, no, in, in Fredericton, unfortunately, where I'm based out of, there are too many of those underground parking garages. But uh, yeah, I guess that would be true. Maybe there's underground bunkers that you just didn't know, but you could have had some real, uh, gone out and some, done some sleuthing. And yeah, that's possible. The office we were in used to be a post office, and, and there was one of these rooms I was in there, which also had a little tiny vault in it. And my manager and I did go put it in there, but that didn't work either. So it would still ring, uh, which I was surprised by. But it, yeah, those phones were doing a pretty good job. Um, so another another missed opportunity there would have been to continuously lose your can and then have to expense the purchase of new cookie cans, which you would then have to constructively empty. of. <laughs> yeah, I'd be really into that. But, yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's an awesome story. I think that's uh, I think you can actually just go on the Internet and buy Faraday cages now. But uh, this, as you said, this is a long time ago. And so that's cool. I think. Uh, being able to stretch and, and be creative to get your testing is, is a great testing skill. So uh, thanks for the story, Shan. Have a great afternoon. Yeah, you too. And now uh, we're going to talk to Goldie Zohar. Goldie is one of my senior testers who works on a couple of our, our different sites. And, and Goldie's always has an interesting thing to tell us. So Goldie, uh, I'm told that uh, you have a nice and interesting uh, bug that you're going to tell us about. Hi. Hi. So why don't you just go ahead and tell us? Yeah, oh, I have an interesting one. Uh, so one of the companies I worked for provides an app that gets uh, measurements for meters and displays information in different type of charts or diagrams, whatever the client uh, chose, according to the customer. We tested uh, usually on local, and 
before we handing the version over to the client, we test it on a virtual server on the cloud. One of the releases, day before we send the version to the client, we noticed a funny slash disturbing issue. The display data was inconsistent. Every time we click on display button, the data displays different information. And then we find out that every click on the button increase the time zone by, by one hour. So the display data change every click. It only happened on a AWS server, but not on the local. So the good thing we found it before we handing the version over to the client so we could fix it. We basically worked during weekend to fix it. So we were able to send the fixed version on time. <laughs> that is a really unique issue. So you're saying that every time you clicked on the button within the interface, the background decided you were in a new time zone. So every time you were looking for consistent data, it'd be data that, that was plus an hour and then plus an hour and then plus an hour like that? Exactly. So the data change every time we click on the display button. Wow. And that's subjective enough that it wouldn't really show up very well in your uh, in your test script as expected results, right? Because Exactly. Correct. Yeah, because also we on localhost, it didn't happen. It only happened on the cloud because it was something disconnected between uh, the time zone and the display button. Wow, that, that is an interesting one. And, and then if that had hit production, the capability of figuring it out would, oh, it would take days of trying to recreate. Well, maybe, maybe you'd get lucky. But I can just see that being a rabbit hole that took forever to figure out. Yeah, and also it's a lot of money involved though, because... All the information is gas or electricity consuming. So companies want to save money by monitoring their usage. And if the data is inconsistent, they can't really follow it. Right. And and if it's just feeding into reports, oh, it would be so difficult. Yeah, totally. That's an awesome bug. Well, thank you for that, Goldie. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, you're welcome. So the next guest we have today is Ellery Furlong. Ellery is an automator with PQA. He's been with us for quite a while, and he's got a pretty good story to uh, to tell us. So uh, welcome, Ellery. Hi, thank you, Mike. All right. Uh, why don't you uh, dive right in and tell us, is it a bug or an issue, or, or tell us your story? It's, it's really a, a whole project, and of course, it has nothing to do with automation, but I think it really helps hit home that testing is more about the process than the software itself. So about two and a half years ago, I was on a project for a fairly large company. And the goal of the project was to test their help desk staff to make sure that they followed the correct process and gave us the steps we were supposed to. So we would call in with a, a fake name, uh, tell them what our problem was, and we would check to see if they gave us the steps to find a resolution that we expected them to. And it might be with an application or something like that. And we didn't even have the actual application in front of us. We just had a script that we followed and we just agreed with them no matter what they told us. And then we took some notes and passed that along to the client at the end. So one interesting story was, well, you know, there's only so many people working the help desk. So you would call in with one name and then a few minutes later, you might call in with another name and you get the same person. So obviously they know, you know, what's going on, but we all kind of played the part, even though we knew it was a test. And then another time, so the fake name I had, I actually, I mispronounced it and they, they couldn't actually find this user in their system. And then they said, well, do you mean this name? And then I had to, you know, kind of sheepishly admit that I mispronounced my own name, but yeah. So it was an interesting project. 
Wait, so so the bug here is the caller in didn't know their own name? Well, that was yeah, that was a user error, I guess. But <laughs> it was a name from a different language, and I I mispronounced it, and they had no idea who I was just because they were looking for a name that didn't exist. Something like that you could have just owned and said, no, no, that's not how you pronounce my name. It's like this. Yeah, no, yeah. Looking back, maybe that's what I should have done. But in the moment, I was, you know, it's a little weird anyways, because us testers, we tend to be a bit more introverted, I guess. Some might claim I'm not. But uh, so, you know, even just talking on the phone, you know, can kind of get your nerves up. So I don't think I had the confidence in that moment to pretend that I knew how to pronounce my name better than they did. But (laughs) Well, and that's fair. We've done a number of engagements like that. And, and they're really, they are interesting. And they, and they take you outside of, of your ideas of testing. Because what you're doing is you're testing of their capability to use the software through the script. So you still are testing the software to an extent, but mostly you're testing that they've built scripts that are meaningful and useful. But you still need a human to help them through that. And, and testers are okay for that. But you're not really there to trap a bug. Right. So you're you're there to improve quality, but as opposed to a tester who's looking for a bug, you don't really get to be the person who finds a bug unless they get stalled or stymied or can't get through it, right? Yeah, and I think I think the idea was just to make sure that, you know, given a problem, they knew to identify that that was the problem and that there was the solution for that problem. So I mean, it helps us understand that testing wears way more hats than most testers wear. Yeah, and I, I think it just shows that you know, for software testing, software is just the medium we're testing. But, you know, we, we look at business processes, I think. Awesome. Thanks, Ellery. That was a great little story. Yeah, thank you. Well, after listening to these stories, and Ellery's especially, I think it's unfair for me just to facilitate all the way through all these without giving my own story. So I was thinking about what story that I would be willing to, to tell or, or what hadn't been lost in the midst of the past. But the one thing was it was less an issue and more some uh, realization that I came to. And it was pretty early in my career. I was working at a, a, a railroad, which was my first testing gig, and I was their first tester. And it had a lot of legacy systems in it, but it was message based and it was all about moving rail cars around and stuff. And they had a lot of people who had developed systems and they became the sole supporters of those systems. And it's really where I started to understand the developer's mindset and the idea of silos. And so we would get a production issue and the production issue would go to the computer operators and they would send out a note saying, hey, I've got this issue and it's involved in these six systems because the messages were moving around and they would find it in the end system. And what you would get is they would just pass from developer to developer who'd, who'd look at it. The developer would look at it and go, hey, this isn't me. And they would just throw up their hands and say, not me. And the next person would get it. Not me. And the next person would get it. And eventually someone would figure out that, oh, look, it was that second developer in that chain of four or five. But you'd have to go back to them with proof and you would have to explain to them how this is indeed their fault. And they would go, oh, yeah, OK, this is my fault. And if they just spent an extra three minutes looking at it the first time, they would have known it was theirs. But they, they just had no clue what the systems before them really did and the systems after them really needed. They just lived in this little bubble of their own. Um, but myself as a tester, I had to relate all these things together. I had to track the messages through. I had to create the data and I had to understand all this stuff. And it became part of my job that the, the operators would call me and say, we're having this problem. And I would take a look at the problem and I'd say, oh, yeah, this is Bob's fault. And I would go and I would hand it to Bob and, and he would say, hey, this isn't my fault. And I said, no, wait, Bob, take a little, little deeper. And, and what it ended up doing is I think I even looked at the stats is that overall it was saving us 80% reaction time on issues that came into the field. 
And no one really thought of, I mean, I was the first tester they'd had and they loved me because I produced reproduction steps and stuff, but no one had ever really thought that QA, they're big picture, they understand how things fit together and they re really provide value at this level. And so uh, for all of you out there who are younger testers, remember that that learning how things go together is core strength of testers and it's a really important thing and a value that you can provide. But enough about me. This is about other people's testing stories. So let's hop on the line with my friend Satya. Hey Mike. So uh, the story that we are looking for, um, I will tell you the experience that we have with one of the client with the provincial um, energy provider. We've been working with this client to find out a performance bottlenecks, uh, what happens when a power outage uh, goes on and the customers keep calling to those energy providers to find out what is the scenario. And in this scenario, all the customers will uh, try to log in uh, to the provincial sites and find out what's the outage going on. So as an PQA uh, like a service provider, we present an interesting fact about it and uh, try to design those scenarios in our scripts to hand handle those mapping scenarios like you never know uh, where is the outage pointed out in a particular area. So handling this one with uh, with our the JMeter tool, it's a quite interesting thing that uh, I like to share. Most of this one is on a GIS map uh, scenarios, so the customer doesn't want to invest anything to implement this one. They wanted to implement this on an open source uh, tool, so we took it in a challenge. And as in uh, JMeter side, we developed the scripts uh, to handle the scenarios. It's actually bit by bit uh, loading those maps and uh, investigating where the bottlenecks are, where the page loads are going on, those things. And we actually found quite a bit of bottlenecks on those GIS servers and the customer was really happy to getting fixed before it going to production site. Yeah, that, that's a quite a bit of interesting work to be done and we have accomplished uh, successfully on this one. The customer was very happy with those uh, estimations uh, and those uh, bottlenecks that we have found early before going to production site. So what we're talking about here is, is I'm a user, I'm sitting in my home, my lights go out, I pull up my phone, I go to the, the energy provider site, and I try and look on the map to find out if there's an outage notification for my area. So the big challenge there is if it's a big outage, right, if it's a whole city that's out, you're going to have 10, 30, 100,000 people trying to do this. And so you were making sure that those bottlenecks didn't exist and that you didn't have people who are already afraid because they're in the dark not able to get any information. So you were making sure that that panic situation was diffused, right? Yeah, that's correct. We wanted to make uh, the user customer experience uh, more more friendly uh, rather than like uh, breaking uh, during those outages so that the customer doesn't get uh, or the user doesn't get frustrated uh, loading the maps on their user interfaces, right? On the mobiles or the desktops. Well, that's cool. That's like some real life value. I mean, one of the best feelings for a tester is knowing that the issue that they've helped overcome has a real tangible impact on people in their lives. And in this case, it's making people less afraid. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, that's nice experience uh, with working with this uh, energy provider and knowing about how the maps and the GIS uh, system works. Uh, that's a good experience. And I'll always remember this client. <laughs> so there's quite a bit of experience on this. Awesome. Well, that's a really great story. Thanks, Satya. Thanks, Mike. Awesome. And with this last story, I would like to say a special thank you to Christine, John, Ellery, Keith, Shawnee, Satya, Goldie, Ashen, 
Sahame and Matt today for calling in with us and sharing some really great testing stories. I really enjoyed hearing them. It just goes to show that every experience that we have can help open up your eyes or help you remember something or work on on the way that you yourself can be a better tester in the future. Uh, Although some of these stories were funnier than others, I think every single one of them had one or possibly multiple nuggets of truth that will help us all be better testers. And I think one of the best things of when testers get together is is we tell these stories, our testing stories of what was good and what was bad. And I know that other people standing there might think that we're just super geeks or whatever, but it's it's important that we tell these stories. And, And it not only connects us as a community, it makes us better. We're going to do more of these in the future. And, and if you have a great story to tell, please hop over to at PQA Testing on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or just into our website and share them with us. And let's see if we can get some dialogue going and become a, a even better community of testers. If you're enjoying our conversations about everything software testing, we'd love it if you could rate and review PQA Panel Talks on whatever platform you're listening on. Thanks again for listening, and we'll come back to you again in September, I think, with a uh, discussion about automation.